I really believe that if you're using Kickstarter as a way to test out an idea, you're going to fail. Hello and welcome to Shopify On Location. I'm Shuang Esther Shan, coming to you from our space in downtown San Francisco. The Bay Area is a nexus of innovation. A lot of new product ideas are brought to life through crowdfunding. Then some of the successful campaigns turn into thriving businesses. And the poster child of this phenomenon is Peak Design. Founder Peter Daring launched his first Kickstarter campaign back in 2011 to fund his project, the Camera Capture Clip, the device that attaches a camera to a photographer's body, making it easier for outdoor enthusiasts to shoot their favorite moments. Today, Peak Design has raised over $34 million on Kickstarter. It remains an independent company without outside investors. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Great to be here. So your love for the outdoors, travel, and photography inspired you to create the very first camera capture clip. Why did you choose crowdfunding to bring the product to life? Well, you know, it's something that became probably the most obvious business decision that there was. I didn't go into my entrepreneurial journey with uh, a business plan per se. I just saw it. I really believed in the product itself. And my plan was I was going to make this product and I'd figure out how to sell it later. Frankly, Kickstarter just kind of cropped up in the meantime. And that was just probably the the first piece of dumb luck that has really contributed significantly to to Peak Design's success. So the major reason for starting Peak Design also has to do with the freedom that you'll get. Why was entrepreneurship so appealing to you? You know, what's funny is that I never even contemplated trying to raise money. My whole calculus was how much do I have saved up? When am I going to go need to get a job to raise additional money? And by a job, I'm talking about at a restaurant, kind of to make ends meet. And it just never even entered my calculus. And probably that's in part because the capture camera clip, you know, is something that I was going to sell for $75. It wasn't some world-saving invention. And the goal was to make things for a little bit and sell them for more. So it just never even entered my mind that I would be raising money. I was planning on just literally going door-to-door to camera stores, which is something I did, and saying, hey, this is how it works. Do you want to sell this thing? And I was actually finding moderate success before the Kickstarter campaign. But when the Kickstarter campaign came, it was like, oh, this is this is the internet. This is what this is cooking. And you have an engineering background, which helped with designing. You had a job, but you actually wanted more freedom, which I guess that scares certain people. But you kind of embrace that entrepreneurship journey. Yeah, I suppose that is. I know that a lot of people like that sort of security. And for me, I took four months, bought a one-way ticket to started in Hong Kong. And this was just like the most exceptional journey of my life. I had no plan whatsoever, nothing other than freedom and the 15 grand in my bank account. And those four months just showed me how much I wanted to be an independent person. I was previously doing construction engineering big projects for a big company. And I was always attracted to 
what it's really like to put physical work into place every day. But even more powerful than being a part of that for me was wanting to do something, you know, showing that like I could make it on my own. That's what seemed important. And you did over and over again about to launch your 11th campaign on Kickstarter. So what are some tips for people who want to have a successful campaign? What are the essential elements? <sighs> Number one, in my opinion, is the product. Like, what problem is it trying to solve? Has that problem already been solved elsewhere? Like, what is your unique selling point? A lot of people approach Kickstarter, and I don't think they have a good notion of how big the problem they're trying to solve is. It may be that it's just a big problem for them, or they perceive it a little bit differently. The first product, Capture, almost every photographer who has ever put on a neck strap has experienced wow, this literally hurts my neck and I can't be hands-free. I have to have one hand on the camera while walking. Every photographer who has endeavored to, to pick up a camera has experienced this problem and that problem wasn't being well solved. Um, and so you kind of look at the magnitude of the problem, people's ability to perceive it, and then what is your solution? How effectively does it actually attack that problem? Really, that's what defines an addressable market. These are all terms that were a bit foreign to me at the time, but there was something intuitive to me about that. And I felt like there's a need here, Then the solution that I have aptly uh, solves the problem. And so I think people are going to buy it. And I went into it with that kind of confidence. And there's like a huge component of storytelling there. How do you distill all the ideas and all of the things that you want to say in short, snappy sentences and really eye-catching visuals? Well, the edit button is your friend. But even, you know, you look at the progression of peak design. I believe that first Kickstarter video was six minutes and 30 seconds of me going on and on and on. The progression, not just of peak design, but also of this like small entrepreneur getting their points across. Like back in 2011, it was early enough where the formula was still very much being defined and it was not outlandish to have a six minute and 30 second video. It also goes to show you that attention spans have changed so much in just the 12 years that has passed. I mean, never, never, never would would I take a simple product like Capture and it, and it take that long to explain it. And so um, we've been, you know, honing that edge over the years and, and, and the, the concision with which you explain ideas. Not sure I'm doing it right now, but it is critical to success. And I think a lot of it in the early days of Kickstarter is you want to address all the questions within your video. You want to hit all the points. And to your totally. point, the way that we look at campaigns have definitely changed and you evolve with that. Yeah, absolutely. We've evolved with it and we've driven a lot of the strategy. And I, I don't mean to sound like we're, we're making too big of assumptions there, but virtually nobody's done more Kickstarter campaigns than us with more consistency. And the degree to which we see kind of the uh, imitation is maybe too too harsh of a term, but like the, those campaigns that are very clearly inspired by ours. Um, that's not to say there's not a whole ton of other original ideas and campaigns out there, um, but uh, we, we've definitely been a part of kind of driving the current way to approach a Kickstarter. 
And having a successful campaign is just the beginning. The next stage is where all the stress happens, where you have to find mm -hmm. manufacturers. And it's something that you had to iterate and perfect over the years. Give us some tips for working with manufacturers. Well, the first step, and this is this is something that a lot of people have made early on, is you should the time to look for manufacturers is not during your Kickstarter campaign and certainly not after. It's months and most likely years before your Kickstarter campaign. I really believe that if you're using Kickstarter as a way to test out an idea, you're going to fail. Even if your idea is good and you get traction, if you don't have the manufacturing dialed in, it's going to take much longer than you think to bring that to market. And then all the goodwill and the excitement that you've generated in that campaign, will like the, the air will be sucked out of the room. So you've got to be there ready to come toward with a working product relatively soon after that Kickstarter. And that's challenging, right? Because the, the reason you do Kickstarter is so you can raise money. And the, the primary thing that you use that money for, at least in a physical product, is purchasing an inventory. And if you're saying, well, you've got to get far in the purchasing of inventory um, along that process, well, how do, you, how do you marry those two? And really, it's a delicate dance of hitting it just right. You've got to get through your first article creation. You've got to get your product to be working well. And you can kind of work out the kinks and, and, and allow for those shipping timelines to happen. But... If you go too early or too late, it's not going to work out well. So once a campaign reaches its goals, you now have to make the product. How did you go about finding the right manufacturing partners? And how did those relationships change over the last decade? At the beginning of a journey, you're not going to be able to have enough leverage to say to a manufacturer, we need you sourcing renewables. We need solar panels on the roof. We need you to follow blue sign uh, material procurement. These are all things that we get to impart over time as we grow in, in power. And there's a couple, I'd say Apple and Nike are the two best companies that I know that are really turning the screws on their manufacturers and making sure that they are as sustainable as possible. And let's be clear, that doesn't mean they're solving climate change at this point, um, but just be, being as sustainable as the current state of the art allows. It's something that I'm very proud that Peak Design has achieved a scale where we can also, you know, begin to play that game. Certainly not as deeply as an Apple or a Nike who are getting into the second and third tier manufacturing, but we're doing a great job with our first tier manufacturers and starting to do more with our second tier manufacturers. I'm pretty proud of that. It's very exciting. And I'm excited to get into your latest venture later on in the show. Um, so after these successful campaigns on Kickstarter, it's also a great foundation of a customer base. How are you now talking to people outside of that community and using different marketing channels and tactics to reach a bigger audience? Well, I think like any, uh, really any successful brand out there right now, marketing is something where you need to canvas a lot of ground. Because still in, in today's world, if you're not a photographer, you probably haven't heard of Peak Design. And yet we make a lot of products for people that don't own a camera. And so we are, I mean, performance marketing through social and email. Yes, yes, of course. We've, we've even run some billboard campaigns. We've got physical stores now that are important. We're just getting into the podcast interviewing, um, excuse me, podcast advertising. 
the interviewing's great. This <laughs> one doesn't you. cost a dime. <laughs> um, but it's uh, got to be a, a very broad approach. And my personal pipeline is I talk to my friends who are gearheads. They give me suggestions. Then I go on the internet and read a bunch of reviews and watch a bunch of review videos, which all signs point to peak design. <laughs> so yeah, talk to us about managing your reputation in so many different fragmented little pieces all over the internet. You know what's kind of hilarious that I didn't mention it? It's it almost certainly is the is the most important and biggest form of our marketing. But we've come by it very honestly. And what I mean by that is that we have not injected money into the influencer sphere or the review sphere in our past. And we've always just gotten a lot of great reviews and a lot of internet traffic. And I think that because that's happened organically, there's an authenticity that comes through that people are, are somehow able to glean. And it's honestly just now at this stage that we're thinking, gosh, maybe we should be actually spending some money here to be a little bit more intentional about propping that side of things up. I'm curious about doing that. I don't want to lose the organic nature of people talking about peak design. And I think there's a way we can do it without losing that. But I think that the sophistication of our marketing engine is kind of due to, we have such incredible creative and it's worth spreading that around a little bit more and, and, and smartly allocating marketing dollars more than peak has done in the past. I mean, it's also a double-edged sword because Peak Design is known for his design. It also results in a lot of other creators and companies wanting to copy that design. How have you handled that aspect of competition? Intellectual property is a huge part of it. And we have a massive trove of patents and trademarks that we that we do enforce a lot. And frankly, we need to do a lot more of it because the brand is really starting to get ripped off a lot right now. Um, and to a certain degree, there's only so much that you can do. And the cleanest way out of it is innovate the next thing. There's a line in one of my favorite My Morning Jacket songs. It's, it's simple. It's, uh, they are the imitators. We are the innovators. And that is the role that we play in the market. We are here to innovate and make the next big thing or the next little thing. Our job is to create that. And as a result, we get to sell our, our products for higher prices because it didn't exist before. We are always going to have a trove of imitators behind us sort of nipping at our heels. And that's just capitalism, baby. You know, it really is. And it's okay. I'm not mad about it. It's just the way of the world. And we will, we will fight hard to play fair with the rules and laws set up by this nation and others. Um, but we're always going to have imitators, and that is the price of being an innovator. Just moving forward, and you will stay ahead of the game, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I am joined by Peter Daring, the CEO and founder of Peak Design. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe or follow Shopify Masters wherever you listen. And because we love to bring you helpful stories, give us feedback for the show with a review. Thanks. 
So let's talk about the Bay Area because I think the population in San Francisco in general are so open to new ideas and they're eager to support new startups. How has the city impacted when you were starting Peak Design and influenced the company over the years? Uh, massively. I. It's hard to describe. There is a, there's a culture of entrepreneurship here that is just so incredibly thick. And I think that other cities, especially since COVID, more people have gone other places and the whole notion of remoteness is, is, has taken off so much. But there is an in-person kind of magic to whether you're a software or a hardware company, getting something started here. And I got a lot of help from other people who, you know, I, I, th I feel like the most common tips and tricks I got were just about like 3D CAD software and how to use that more effectively. But I don't know, there's just so many people going through the kind of hopes and dreams process here that you're bound to find relevant conversations kind of around every corner. And it's certainly a part of what, has allowed peak design to be successful. And then the other part is just the, the incredible quality of, of workers who are attracted to this area. Again, I think that is diversifying, especially due to COVID and, and remote working, but no doubt it's been a critical part of our, at least our early DNA. Was it tough being a product-based company to try to exist in this space and also compete with tech companies against the talent pool? Not really. And one, there's, there's kind of a little cottage industry. We're in the dog patch neighborhood in San Francisco, and it's much grittier. It's like, it's like where you find the kind of the more mechanical engineering and industrial design based companies. So there's good precedent for that. And there's just a lot of people who are drawn not to those big tech companies, but they specifically want something small and cool and different and unique. And so finding talent has never been difficult for Peak. I like the way that you think about how you are building culture in your team. One of the things that you brought up when we were chatting earlier was you were thinking of new ways to compensate the team. So um, it shows that you're constantly thinking about how you're structuring the company as well and rewarding the talent that decides to join Peak Design. Yeah, I, it's. I mean, it's it's critical. I like the most profound thing that I can say in a business podcast has to do with what. I call the purpose of peak design. You ready for it? The purpose of peak design is for the employees of peak design to live happy and meaningful lives. That is why we exist. And like, you can either take that as a trite statement, or if you really think about it, like what the hell are we all doing here on this, on this planet, right? That one hell of a stroke of luck that we happen to be here. I'm one of those who believes we probably just get one crack at it. And I want for myself, I want to enjoy my time. And that's why I started Peak Design. It's because I thought it was a more enjoyable path than working the, the, for the construction company I was working for, which was also an enjoyable path, but this one more so. And having the ability and the privilege to get to hopefully inflect some of that upon the employees who work for Peak Design is a massively rewarding part of the job. The people who are most sincerely affected by Peak Design, a thousand to one over our customers or even our vendors, is, is the employees. So 
if I want that for myself, I'd have to be pretty selfish guy and pretty unaware to not also want that same thing for my employees. And that's, that's really what drives the purpose of peak design, why we exist. It sounds like you're trying to offer a bit of that freedom and fun that you were searching for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's literally life-changing and I have so much feedback from the employees of Peak over the years that I know that this sentiment is sensed, it's felt, it's believed, and it's really working. You know, generally speaking, very few people have left Peak Design because they appreciate that what we're trying to do here, we're not trying to save the world. We're not trying to take over the world. We are trying to be really thoughtful and active participants in the world so that we can each individually pursue lives that are meaningful to us. That's the point. I know that we talked a lot about venture funding a little bit earlier on the show. Being in this environment, which is one of the capitals of venture funding, was it ever tempting to think about that? And like, how do you stay kind of very stubborn on the path that you've chosen and make it work for yourself? Well, Initially, I have to cop to a bit of naivety um, when it comes to, you know, that original. It, w- it wasn't through like stalwart uh, resistance to funding. I just like, again, I was like, well, I can make this thing. I'm going to do it on my own. It was over time that I developed the, oh, interesting, something's different about this company. And it's because I don't have a boss. I'm not serving somebody other than myself and my employees. And that is a massive game changer. So no, frankly, it's never been tempting to take VC money. And also, we've been a profitable company since year one. And so the types of investors that call or text or email literally every day are more those who are like, hey, why don't you just take some chips off the table? Give us a little bit and you know, secure yourself a little bit and take a little bit of a liquidity event. And I've successfully resisted those because peak design has been profitable enough where my needs are met. I I own a house in San Francisco, which I think is a tremendous achievement. Um, and I don't need much more than that. I'm really, really comfortable. And so that allows me to continue to grow the business really, really organically and not have that temptation. The way that we're allowed to run the business, like the difference is really, really profound because basically it is the the key to unlocking that purpose that I described. If we're owned by some other company, especially above 50%, like we don't get to pursue meaningful and happy lives for the employees as why we're here. Suddenly we have to make money and returns for that growth equity fund, that private equity fund, who's expecting it to transact again in four years or seven years or go public in 10 years. We don't have that pressure. We can pursue something far more pure. So you had this financial sustainability, which allows you to take a closer look at environmental sustainability while you're running peak design. And that has really inspired you to start climate neutral. Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. I'd say that journey started in 2015. That's when we joined 1% for the planet. Again, with that financial stability, it was like, okay, it's time to start giving back. We were blowing it out of the water, but we were doing well enough. So 1% for the planet says, 
you're going to donate 1% of your revenue, not your profit, but your revenue. So it's a significant amount um, to environmental nonprofits. And here's a list of 2,000 suitable environmental nonprofits. So we started doing that. Um, and three years into doing it, great that we're doing it, but like I didn't, I, I had been kind of developing an opinion with respect to the environment um, that is very much climate focused. And I kind of came to feel that like any dollar that I spend that's not going toward solving the CO2 and its equivalence problem is a dollar that could be better spent. And so I looked for the environmental nonprofit that was attacking this best. And the ones that I came across were actually carbon offsetting nonprofits. Um, I understand probably far better than most due to where I've been now, the controversy around carbon offsets. So there's a whole topic there that, that I could speak at length about, but let's leave that aside for a moment. Um, especially because I got attracted by the landfill gas carbon offset. This is a type of carbon offset mechanism that takes landfills that aren't required by law to be properly capped and their methane captured. And carbon offsets allow a company like Peak Design in San Francisco to cover a landfill in South Carolina and thereby trap the methane and turn that methane into electricity. It's this kind of perfect vision of, okay, we're making bags and clips and straps in Vietnam and China, and we're emitting over there, but we can prevent methane over in South Carolina. And I can see how we could do that on a one-for-one -one basis. So that initial concept started percolating in my mind and seeing how actually financially reasonable it was to do that. Back in 2018, when we first cleared our carbon footprint, the landfill gas offsets were trading for about $3.50 a ton. So for $60,000 on a $30 million revenue company at the time, um, we were able to offset our whole carbon footprint. And it begged the question, holy shit, how come everyone isn't doing this? Obviously, there aren't enough carbon offsets to go around. But don't companies that are claiming to be sustainable know about these types of carbon mitigation techniques? And the ones that do, what are they doing with it? So this launched this whole deep investigation into corporate sustainability. Where are people actually putting their money and what are the claims that they're making? And gosh, it's such a kind of deep story, but the first thing we did is we had to measure our carbon footprint. It cost us 40 grand to measure our carbon footprint, but it was only 60,000 to offset the whole thing. So the first thing I said, well, that's screwed up. It doesn't have to be that hard to measure your carbon footprint. So we made a tool. Eventually, the organization that would, that would be created from this, from this thought process made a software tool to very, very efficiently and cheaply measure carbon footprints. The second thing we did is procure these offsets. And knowing that it was one-fifth of 1% 1 of our revenue, we thought, well, surely more companies should be offsetting their entire carbon footprint. I got together with a guy named Jonathan Cedar, who runs a company called BioLite out of New York. They were the only other company in the outdoor industry I found that was offsetting their whole carbon footprint. So we got together, we had a three-hour dinner, and we sketched out a nonprofit that would eventually become called Climate Neutral. 
and climate neutral fills a void. There was not a nonprofit third-party entity out there who is offering measurement services and then certification services for answering the question, did you measure your footprint and did you buy credible offsets to offset the entirety of it? And the idea is that if you did do that, you get a very clean, literally black and white label that says, did you pay for your carbon or didn't you? And that's climate neutral. And today, there's over 400 brands that have joined Climate Neutral. It's run by a guy named Austin Whitman, who's an environmental industry vet. And he has thrown all his weight behind standing this organization up. And I'm incredibly proud of his efforts and his team's efforts because Climate Neutral is the de facto label in full entity carbon neutrality. And that's after five years of even being conceived. So I'm massively proud of that team's achievements. And I imagine it'll be the most important work that I've ever done by the time it's all said and done. You were very much ahead of the curve, at least from my perspective, because we get pitched new services and businesses that associate with direct-to-consumer brands all the time. And it's something that I begin to hear a lot more of within the carbon space is around maybe COVID. But you started thinking and looking into this in 2015, so arguably half a decade earlier than when I was beginning to look at these pitches. I guess the question is, because there's a lot more of these companies coming out with offsets and measuring, it has become competitive, but you've rounded up a network of like-minded brands. So what is Climate Neutral's differentiator in that? Well, first off, and most importantly, we're a nonprofit. My fiance, I'm actually getting married in one month from today. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> she's a, a climate VC. She's a venture capitalist. And so she gets pitched all day long by companies trying to come up with the, the next newfangled measurement tool. But all of them that are pitching VCs are for-profit. Like Their goal is to, is to extract as much money as possible to measure people's carbon footprints. And the reason we're competitive is because we're saying, hello, we're a nonprofit, we do it better, and we're trying to charge you as little as possible so that the measurement piece of this remains extremely accessible. What we want to do is create demand for carbon offset development. And it's working. Like, it really is working. And we know that because the price of carbon offsets has risen. That's not just due to climate neutral, right? They're, like you said, roughly during COVID is when people, like, this started catching, catching fire, right? The idea of both measurement and of offsetting. We are here to take the wind out of the sails of measurement because we want to give it away for damn near free, which is awesome. All companies should do it. Go to Climate Neutral and sign yourself up for the free tools that are available and start your journey. Um, and then what we're there to do is to create demand in the space for carbon offsets because when there is when there are more people trying to buy them, it means the price goes up. That unlocks new technologies, better technologies, and better quality offsets. And frankly, we need it. There are offset naysayers around there all over the place. I get their arguments. They're not idiotic by any stretch. But the fact is we need a much more robust, both voluntary and compulsory carbon offset market if we're going to mitigate carbon from this planet 
over the course of the next 30 years. And just about every big NGO that has been resistant to that is now coming around to that exact same notion. And I've been kind of screaming it really since 2017. And there is a sense of duality in your existence, I guess, because on one hand, you are building this nonprofit within the carbon space, helping to look at sustainability. On the other hand, you do have to innovate and create new products and generate excitement and feed into this consumerism side. So how do you reconcile the two sides? I've long since gotten over that conundrum. Look, humans are not going to turn to austerity to get out of climate change. We are not going to just give up the privileges and the luxuries that we have. And I say we, I know that there are individuals who at least think that they are making and are making, but more sustainable choices. And that's a really important part of the equation. But the system of the world is so deeply entrenched. You are not going to stop manufacturing. My overall, you know, opinion of how we get to a sustainable world is that over the course of the next 30 years, hopefully in something that is more than a linear uh, approach, we are going to be chipping away at turning all of our energy sources into electric primarily, but other forms of carbon-free energy. And that is like big, big infrastructure work that does take place over decades. And in accelerating the rate of that change to which we switch over to renewables and storage and other clean energies, that is the race that we're on, but it is a marathon. It's 30 years long. And the voluntary offset market is a part of pushing that along faster and faster and faster. So is policy change, so is individual choice, and so is consumer choice. And to the degree that like, I feel guilty for making products in this world, I just, I don't. I think that people just have a, a pretty poor concept of when you look around you, you're probably in a room, it's made of walls, and there's either wood studs in there, or there's metal studs in there, or you've got bricks. All of these things in the physical world are taking some combination of raw elements and applying energy to them to transform them into finished goods and to get them into place. That's the way of the world. That ain't changing. Same thing with food production. And so the idea is not to stop participating in the system of the world. The idea is to help the world transition as quickly as we can to one that is actually sustainable. The two can coexist and has to coexist together. And it sounds like you are optimistic about the future. I am. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Peter. My pleasure. I've very much enjoyed myself. That's Peter Daring from Peak Design. And thank you for joining us on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Ghalib is our supervising producer. And I'm Shwang Esershan. Come back next Thursday for another great episode of Shopify on location in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.